The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Welcome to this edition of Stockhead's Wildcatter podcast. And today we're delighted to have in the studio Stuart Nichols from Strike Energy. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Stuart, you've uh, had a very, very active six months or even 12 months. But I'm just wondering if we can wind the clock back a little bit um, and tell us a little bit about your entry into the industry and what actually uh, encourage you to join the uh, earth sciences industry and how you've come all the way through to being uh, with Strike Energy in the Cooper Basin and the uh, Perth Basin. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, it actually all started back uh, after leaving the sort of Australian Army um, and moving into the Army Reserve. I spent a bit of time sort of looking into the broader landscape of what would come after that and found a very attractive opportunity to, to join uh, Shell. Um, Shell sort of looking at a global uh, portfolio and very much a broad range of uh, and diverse range of opportunities there. Having spent some time in Shell Australia, I uh, which sort of culminated with being the sort of business advisor to Anne Picard, who now sits on the Woodside board. Uh, she was the EVP for the region uh, as her advisor, I sort of had the opportunity to, to see what really uh, the Australian ENP landscape looked like before leaving for a uh, international career with, with, with Shell that uh, spanned across Europe, uh, throughout Southeast Asia, particularly spending quite a bit of time in Myanmar and Malaysia, uh, where I sort of fell in love, uh, so to speak, with my time and exploration there. Um, having come back to Australia to sort of spend some time in the gas commercialisation business uh, here in Perth, uh, I guess the itchy hands and possibly the fast pace of uh, Myanmar and Malaysia uh, had left a scar on me. And then I found the opportunity via a, um, a friend of a friend, which was uh, Tim Goiter, who uh, sort of was lamenting that sort of strike needed some more oil and gas impetus behind it and uh, that uh, it might be an appealing opportunity. And then with John Poynton sort of John, Tim and I uh, went about rebuilding Strike from the ground up back in early 2017. Yes, indeed. And Strike has had quite a long and uh, creditable history. It started off uh, being a private equity business and uh, using some pretty innovative science, which it's still doing, uh, with 3D Seismic was able to make the casino gas discovery in the Otway Basin and driven by Simon Ashton and Tim Clifton at the time, it moved uh, away from Australia, although keeping its uh, Cooper and Aramanga Basin interests and moved into the Eagleford Shale, uh, the Carnarvon Basin and even into the Permian Basin. So by the time, Stuart, you came on the scene, uh, the uh, company was refocusing back in Australia. Is that uh, a fair commentary? Yeah, that's right. Um, it sort of had a uh, a single asset in the Southern Cooper Basin Gas Project. Um, the business itself uh, was quite focused on how to commercialise that gas asset, um, and then 
what was became very apparent to myself and some of my advisors when we were looking at strike before uh, beginning to accept the journey was that there was significant sort of subsurface work that was still required but we felt that the broad range of parameters that um, were in front of the company at that time would land in a sort of commercial outcome and we had sort of taken some deep analogs from the uh, sort of from Alberta and from Colorado where deep coal seam gas uh, once raised its head prior to the, the shale gas revolution there. And we felt that there was an opportunity to, to really uh, take this major resource uh, forward and, and, and on a path towards, you know, true commercial success. So, uh, Stuart, using uh, Strike's Energy's uh, history of uh, getting involved in innovative science and, and forward-thinking technology, you also uh, stretched your hand over to the Western Australia and have taken a considerable chunk of permits in the uh, the Perth Basin, and and that's proved to be quite an exciting journey over the last six to twelve months. Yeah, I guess uh, when you sort of talk about uh, Strike as being a technology innovator, and that's certainly something that we, uh, as in the news management team and new board, have taken forward. I think when you look at the uh, sort of two major projects that we've delivered over the last two and a half years, the Jaws project and the Southern Cooper and the West Aragulla uh, to Exploration Well in the Perth Basin, uh, both of them have set numerous Australian firsts and drilling and completion records. Um, and I think that that's um, a product or a function of looking at both geosciences as well as uh, modern day uh, drilling and completions technology and saying, how can we just push that boat out a little bit further to see if we can't find a, a whole new frontier out there. And in the Southern Cooper, certainly uh, the deepest, longest all-in coal horizontal, the deepest horizontal vertical intercept at 2,100 metres ever achieved in uh, drilling in Australia, as well as the first indirect vertical fractures ever executed, particularly the first ever indirect vertical fractures executed into coal, um, was a product of that. And then when we sort of moved ourselves westward to, to West Aragulla, and some of the excellent uh, geoscientists that I used to work with at Shell uh, who have been very closely involved in this project, sort of saying that the current basins under, the, the current understanding of the basin is is not necessarily accurate. And we believe taking global analogues that these weights here or Permian uh, major gas sands with porosity preservation can be found at depths greater than for well, 3,800 metres at the time, but now we can comfortably say deeper than 4,900 metres. And so, you know, we've used, uh, and also going to the drilling and completions there, that's also the deepest uh, well ever executed onshore Australia of any kind uh, at 5,100 metres. So it's taken a lot of innovative and um, fresh eyes and out-of-the-box thinking, I think, in both the JAWS project in West Aragola to drive them towards the outcomes in which they're, look, uh, they're looking at at the moment. Yes, I think uh, the Wildcatter listener will understand that uh, Strike Energy has been very innovative, both from its geological science point of view, use of uh, seismic technology, and also the uh, adopting the latest and greatest sort of engineering techniques to achieve what it has, both in the southern Cooper Basin and now in the uh, Perth Basin. So the key going forward will be uh, to commercialise these uh, discoveries. Absolutely. And um, the 
Southern Cooper Basin is currently on its sort of appraisal pathway to show that, uh, that the production completions that we've uh, put in via the Jaws wells uh, should be capable of taking the ultra-deep coal seam gas and, and bringing it to surface in quantities and at rates that would be able to be commercialised in what is a very, very attractive uh, above-ground uh, market. And in Western Australia, uh, the, the absolutely, and I've used the word previously, staggering series of results that we found at West Aragulla uh, may prove that it is a strategically sized resource uh, capable of underpinning you know, multiple different development options just by itself. And so that's a really very exciting journey that the company is about to embark on after a flow test in the next week or so. So, Stuart, uh, what is your current understanding, given the potential sort of costs of development on the JAWS uh, deep uh, coal seam gas project, what's your current understanding of what sort of flow rate would be considered to be commercial in a sort of 7 to $10 a gigajoule uh, environment there? So I, I always say that flow rates are... Um, the the punter's understanding of commerciality and really it is the ultimate recoveries of these wells that is the uh, real lever towards commerciality there. Um, if you're going to have to drill 200 wells, you know, over the life of a the field, then uh, and most of them have to be up front, that's just a, a function of the, of the capital uh, profile required. And I think that it what it always comes down to is the ultimate recovery. When we look at the JAWS production system, uh, we had a lot of micro seismic as well as tilt meters uh, deployed during the indirect vertical fracture of the VU upper 40 meter thick uh, Pachuara coal. We could see that the JAWS production system was approximately engaging with about a square kilometer of coal. And back uh, calculating the using the gas contents, et cetera, that we extracted from the coring program of the vertical well, uh, that sort of gives us a feeling that a recovery of sales gas of you know four petajoules plus is uh, is possible, and that's probably where I would point to to say that the Jaws production system, given a seven to ten dollar gigajoule world, is capable of producing a uh, a commercial project. Yeah, and these uh, of course uh, gas flowing from coals has a different production profile from gas flowing from tight sands or shales. You, in fact, uh, the gas flow rate can increase for a number of years before it plateaus and then gradually begins to decline. That's right. I mean, given the complexities uh, of what we're doing in the Southern Cooper with the ultra-deep coal seam project, um, nobody has successfully depressurized and dewatered a uh, ultra-deep coal seam um, before and therefore how does the permeability change over time our modeling and, and reservoir understanding shows that the uh, permeability will increase over time as you remove uh, some of that water and the coal starts to shift and shape and change its shape um, under the different stress regimes of uh, of the changes in pressure there and then towards the end of the life the the coal will tighten up somewhat um, so we've, we're developing a very, very unique and bespoken uh, series of understandings of how coal behaves at 2,100 metres, um, and it's not something that the industry has ever seen before globally. Um, and so I think it should make for a very interesting uh, look back when uh, we do cross the finish line. And now in uh, the Perth Basin, uh, both you and uh, your predecessors, AWE and Origin at Waitsia, have, uh, are filling in the creaming curve for uh, deposits in the Perth Basin after the Dongara 
uh, oil and gas discovery and uh, a couple of smaller uh, oil discoveries at uh, Cliff Head and uh, Hovier and Jingamara and so forth, there seemed to be a big gap in the sort of distribution of oil oil and gas fields in the in the basin. And now your pre-drill estimate for West Eregala was in the order of 900 billion cubic feet of gas. And you've made discoveries in three areas which hold potential for even more gas than that. So what's the way forward in, in terms of testing what you've found both in the Wajina, the uh, Kingia and the deeper Highcliff sandstones? Yeah, so look, let's talk about the, a little bit about the history of the Perth Basin. It's sort of been 60 years of a lot of drilling on 2D um, and sort of towards the, the fringe of the trough uh, along the coastal margins there, uh, just due to the understanding that anything that was deep was likely to be diagenetically or thermo, thermodiagenetically destroyed in terms of sandstone or reservoir quality. Um, that has created a, a vast string of exploration wells that have been unsuccessful in the Perth Basin. And, and generally, as you say, that creaming curve had all but petered out prior to the discovery of weights here. What we're now seeing, I think, is uh, a reverse creaming curve occurring where um, new geological understanding of the basin's evolution uh, and what is possible when you put the basin in the frame of reference of global geology uh, is showing that there is a significant string of major discoveries still yet to come. Uh, the, when we look at the uh, what's been discovered at Waits here and now at West Aragulla, this could be the beginning of a new Cooper Basin, which, you know, could, could lend itself to being one of the most premier onshore basins uh, globally in terms of conventional gas. So from an understanding point of view, it's virtually a basin within a basin. That's right. Uh, I think everything below sort of 4,000 metres was the great unknown and uh, conventional wisdom would have told you that there was no point spending any money looking down there. But uh, since having gone down the West Aragala route, we are looking at a, a discovery which is significant in its own right. As you pointed out, we had a pre-drill estimate of around 900 BCF in the Kinkia and the Highcliff. We had a very low chance of success of finding a uh, Bahara Springs analogue in the Wajina. That indeed has come in. Uh, that's due to some stratigraphic trapping of the fluvial deltaic fan that is the uh, Wajina gas discovery. Um, so we, we're sort of starting to, to feel that, that, that between the three uh, discoveries that you know, that a lot of different development concepts are now possible under West Aragola in its own right. When we look at uh, our Kingia pre-drill estimates alone, and the, uh, our Kingia discovery, you know, absolutely took us by by surprise with how good a quality and, what the, and the absolute uh, magnitude of it. Our pre-drill sort of modelling on a quanti our quantitative interpretation and, and wedge modelling and fluid substitutions, etc., all sort of pointed towards a model that worked at 20 metres of net pay at around 11% or more porosity. We've ended up with 58 metres of net pay at greater than 12.6% porosity in areas and sections up to 19% with about 102 millidarcies on average across the formation. And so this is just really, as I said, you know, it pushed the boat out in terms of our thesis around that you wanting to be in the trough and to the southeast of Waits here and the, uh, the the three different basin um, or play dynamics that were coming together at the exact same time in that early Permian uh, has rung true. Um, and as I presented at Good Oil, we've even you know extracted fossilized sea sponge to to the surface whilst in the cuttings whilst drilling. Um, 
to to sort of point to that marine uh, depositional environment that was underpinning a lot of our uh, analogous work to the Gulf of Mexico, offshore Nigeria, and the Viking Grabens of the North Sea. So, Stuart, do you have the funding in place or the equipment in place now to to go and do the uh, the flow testing on these uh, zones that you've outlined? Yeah. Certainly, uh, Strike is funded through the flow test, so uh, that's that's an easy one to answer on that one. Uh, the next one is that we've called out the Firetail uh, uh, flow testing crew to begin uh, mobilising to site. Uh, we're looking at sort of commencing the beginning of a flow test towards the end of the uh, the first week or so of October. Um, that flow test will then go through a series of different stages, um, you know, full open uh uh, flow to the choke and then several different choke settings, etc., where we are looking for um, very intricate pressure data uh, from the reservoir in order to be able to further uh, have confidence and define the lateral extent of the field and, and the column size, etc., which we have a strong indication of from our downhole mini DSTs as well as the MDT samples that we took. Uh, but getting additional data on that is going to make the, the forward program further robust. Yeah, so flow test with a pressure build-up will give you an idea of w- what sort of volume of gas the uh, well is connected to. Absolutely. I think when you look at the weight seal wells, they're sort of looking at around uh, uh, 12 wells, uh, all recovering north of 60 BCF to drain the entire of the Waitsier field. When you look at West Aragala, because it's so much deeper, it has a much smaller aerial extent, but the gas is under a lot higher pressure and therefore the expansion of that gas uh, is a lot more, um, is a lot higher. And therefore, you know, we're, we're looking at a significantly lower number of wells to drain a potentially larger field size than that of Waitsier. So, when we look forward into what does West Aragulla's development look like, the low-cost nature of the West Aragulla uh, gas fields is what really will drive a very broad range of those developments. And, uh, you know, dare I say we aspire to be the, the price maker of uh, domestic gas going uh, going forward. Yeah, and I guess uh, really the, the ultimately how many wells you drill is sort of irrelevant because if you can supply... Uh, the de- demand for gas with one or two wells, you wouldn't bother drilling anymore until you needed to. Yeah, that's right. When we look at the uh, sort of life of the field, you know, you're calling on a rig every few years. And, uh, the, the extended drilling programs aren't there for for this one, which is you know a really sort of amazing outcome that we've been able to to generate from this very deep, very high quality, very clean. Uh, conventional natural gas field. And given your deep connections within the industry um, from your previous uh, employment, uh, what's your feeling for the way in which some of the molecules of methane that you produce might end up in uh, liquefied natural gas in uh, coming out of the Pilbara? Yeah, good question, Peter. And I guess that's one that the market is watching very closely. Um, the if you look at the AMEO uh, gas opportunity statements, which were written in December 2018, it talks about a market that's relatively well balanced in terms of supply and demand in the late 2020s, uh, but that requires the delivery of four key projects into the state, and that is Scarborough, Browse, Equus, and Waitsia. Um, 
Now, it's, it's been, Waitsu has been, let's start with Waitsu, it's been mooted as a export project. Uh, and certainly, you know, it's, I don't think it takes um, uh, absolute genius to put two and two together that Mitsui is looking at their position in the Northwest Shelf as well as their position in Browse and starting to look at that, that interim gap in uh, supply to the Northwest Shelf before Browse starts to try and fill those trains and is seeing a very short-term high-value opportunity to potentially provide feed gas into that LNG plant. Um, when we start to look at other projects that were listed in that gas statement of opportunity, you've got Equus, which is uh, the Western Gas Project, which is a technically complex uh, standalone development required where um, Hess, the previous operator, had spent quite a considerable amount of money trying to find ways in order to commercialise that project. I think the Western Gas guys are going to give it a, an absolutely red-hot crack, um, but there are some there are complexities there on the technical front that need to be overcome. Now we've go moved to Scarborough, and Scarborough is is going to get into the market and, and in an approximate time frame. That, in, in my opinion, is, is what Woodside put forward. But there are already commercial issues with BHP and the timing of the FID there, and we have seen uh, uh, Mr. Coleman at Woodside have to decouple the Pluto Train Two. Uh, FID as well as the Scarborough FID in order just to sequence those things appropriately and let some of that commercial complexity play out. Um, so we're looking at a, a a domestic market as well as an LNG market, which is precariously balanced. And I think that the next 12 to 24 months are going to be pivotal um, in, in showing some of the speed and the timings of those projects uh, getting to take their investment decisions and whether they're ever actually indeed going to come into the market or um, they might be significantly de delayed. That's right. Now for Strike, yeah, for Strike that presents a great opportunity. And I, and I know Matt Kay has, uh, at Beach has been saying quite publicly, you only get the opportunity to sell the gas once. Um, and so maybe just, you know, whilst the West Australian market is relatively well supplied and we have a, a small offtake arrangement with, with West Farmers via, via CSBP, we could potentially be looking at monetizing some of the gas uh, quickly and efficiently in order to bring cash flow into to, uh, strike, which you know is X cash flow at this point in time as it moves from exploration company to producer. Uh, in order to bring down our future cost of capital and sit back and actually watch how some of these critical you know, pieces of the, uh, in the game come together and where really is that high value opportunity. And in, the, in parallel, we'll be looking at our own standalone uh, developments, you know, whether that be via chemicals, whether that be an aggregation play of the North Perth Basin in order to potentially underpin some uh, pipeline exports to the east coast of Australia. Um, you know, that... That is the opportunity set that we have we've currently got in front of us, and we'll let the super majors and Australian majors sort of tussle it out in the northwest to see if they can't uh, provide us a further opportunity there. Yeah, and fertilisers and various other uh, industrial applications nearby. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, there's a lot of uh, you know uh, large domestic gas contracts that have been put out there and, uh, that are not necessarily going to be delivered on if uh, project decisions aren't taken in a timely manner. Yeah. Um, so I think that, as I said, the North Perth Basin could start to emerge as the next Cooper Basin in, in Australia. That could lend itself towards being a, a, a continentally or East Southeast Asian focal energy focal point of very low cost input uh, uh, 
energy in order to underpin some of those manufacturing aspirations of regional urea, ammonia, methanol players. Yeah. And of course, at the moment, it's all complicated by a sort of a short-term or medium-term glut of LNG, which sees the spot price in Asia at $5 US a gigajoule and Commonwealth contract prices around $8 a gigajoule. So being a a, uh, merchant gas supplier uh, would be an interesting proposition, but it's uh, with if you if you're selling into a market at eight dollars a gigajoule to the customer in in Asia, and there has to be a f- transport cost and production costs uh, taken out of that, so the merchant gas producer would have to factor those situations in. Yeah, I think that um, so I'm probably a little bit more bullish on LNG prices than maybe what you are, Peter, and that sort of is a product of my uh, let's call it Shell indoctrination. Um, Shell, you know, who controls one third of the world's LNG, both in supply and, and trading, uh, is is putting forward a significant gap uh, in 2030, and now that gap is being very aggressively chased down by U.S. Canadian LNG producers. The Mozambique project. Uh, is trying to move itself along as quickly as possible. Qatar is looking at expanding its LNG footprint. But the gap is sizable and it does take, you know, north of 60 months to build an LNG project um, if it's an integrated one. And so therefore I feel that uh, if LNG prices start to rise northward, it's a, and there's, there is a underutilization in some of the LNG facilities across the Northwest, uh, it's a function of just Good business that people will be looking around for um, feedstock that, that they can take, and unfortunately, with offshore developments, uh, they take a long time to be brought onshore. When you are an onshore weights here or West Eregala, you're right next to, or in Waitsi's case, on top of the pipeline, and the timeline to being able to bring significant materials, volumes of gas into the market, you know, north of 200 million standard cubic feet a day, is uh, is very quick and. Uh, and so I think that we should, as a as a joint venture and as a company, Strike needs to utilise and maintain that level of flexibility in order to be able to capture the absolute best moment in when um, delivering very large volumes of gas into the market is, is perfectly timed in terms of price. So thank you, Stuart, for that uh, perspective. And I think that's a really good place to end because it just shows if you're taking a, a 10 or 12-year view on the market, and uh, you're looking at brownfields expansions versus very, very expensive greenfields developments, then uh, I think Western Australia is in a very strong position. And uh, uh, with Strike Energy's position in the Perth Basin, uh, with this discovery and the potential of others to come along, then it also is looking at a, at a bright future. So uh, this has been Stockhead's uh, Wildcatter Report on Strike Energy, and we'd thank Stuart for his time and, and uh, appearance today. Thanks, Peter. Always good fun.